0: It was speed to light. Um, when we were in Sunday school and Josh got up and said, or asked a question, is God fair? I started feeling a lot better about what I was going to preach. Because I was like, am I really supposed to preach on something that tends to be philosophical or is very philosophical? And that's not my forte. Believe me, that is not where I usually go. I'm just like a plain, you know. Let's just have the facts and all this thinking and wondering about what's this, what's this about. Um, but I've titled this message this morning, "The Meaning of Life." Now that's really, you're really excited about that, aren't you? <laughs> the uh, the meaning of life, and I'm going to put up a a, a pick in just a moment about the Westminster Confession, but. I wasn't really sure about going down this road. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit of a window into Christian philosophy. There is such a thing as Christian philosophy. But uh, our world is in such a mess, isn't it? Just think about what's going on. There's war in Europe. There's war in the Middle East. I get a daily update from a couple that's in uh, Israel, up in northern Israel, near carry uh, out Shimona where there's been a lot of rockets to fall and they just go in their bomb shelter and, and weather those things and come back out. They're having services. They're ministering to people. But um, this war looks like it's going to be carrying on for a little while, doesn't it? And then look at our own nation. Our own nation is in such peril. So many problems and we got this election year and I just kind of just shy away from the election years anymore. There's just so much back and forth, right? Certainly, I'm not the only one like, man, this is just getting tiring. But the Westminster Confession, most Presbyterians and maybe Methodists know uh, these 107 questions. But the most obvious question is the question, what is the chief end of man? And I think a graphic we have back there. If it's not, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now the backdrop to all this, and it's like, boy, that's, that's certainly a backdrop. The backdrop to all of this is the flood of Noah, Noah's flood, the flood that his family went through. And we see that God came to the conclusion, looking at the, how mankind had gotten so off kilter, so off course that he said, <laughs> I'm gonna start over. I think that's what Genesis six actually said. He's just going to start over. He's going to do it all over. He's going to just keep these people on the ark. And, it, and even when Jesus begins to minister, he mentions Noah's flood. He mentions the flood. Now, I'd have to say that a lot of people, not just in the secular world, don't believe that there was a global flood. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because there are probably some people here who say, no, that didn't happen. But I remember going to a, a conference up at Evangel University 10, 12 years ago. And uh, John Lennox was there, and I got to meet him. And uh, there was this symposium of different subjects, and the flood was one of the subjects. And then there was people there that was professors at Evangel and different ones that were actually trying to make a case that it wasn't a global flood, that it was just regional. And, um, but I want you to listen to what Jesus said. About Noah's flood. Before we get too much deeper into this philosophical question, this is in Matthew 26, verse 36. Jesus said this: "What about the day or hour? No one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, he's talking about future, but he says it's going to be kind of like the days of Noah. So we'll be at the coming of the Son of Man." For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. You can say this is kind of a description of a massive flood. Jesus was closer in time frame, 2,000 years closer to the time of the flood than we are. And it seems like he was saying that this was a massive flood and that God just started it over. If you go to Genesis 6, this is how the writer, how Moses wrote this out in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of, of the human race had become. And when I read this, I want you to think, is this kind of like just a regional flood or is he making a point that this was the collective body of humanity? The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. Does it sound regional? And maybe some here have kind of listened to people who says, well, it didn't happen. The human race couldn't reproduce like that. You know, the scattering of the languages, you remember that, the Tower of Babel? Why couldn't God just scatter not just the languages, but the way people looked? God can do anything he wants to. And if he wanted to make all of humanity a little different, he could have done that as well. He said, the human race I've created and with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what is the point that Jesus is looking back here in this text to Genesis when he's speaking in Matthew 26, that this is gonna kind of like be like the coming of the son of man, the son of God. So I think we have to pay attention to what the meaning of life is all about. So I'm gonna introduce you to a couple of people. Maybe uh, you've heard of these people, maybe you haven't. And this is not a highbrow thing because that's not me. I don't want to mention a couple people. The first person is Soren Kierkegaard. Um, Lived in Denmark. Theologian, author, um, philosopher, committed believer. Only lived to the age of 42. He didn't even make it to his 43rd birthday. But this was his premise in life. Being a Christian required a radical courageous decision to follow Christ. This was his founding statement. And the interesting thing about Soren Kierkegaard was that he actually proposed to a young lady who was a Christian and um, he was so engulfed in study and writing that he decided that he couldn't go through with the marriage and he called the marriage off and was basically lived broken in his heart that he didn't marry Regina, but he lived out his life, and he wrote so many statements and documents and research, 14 volumes, a massive amount that this man wrote, and he became synonymous in the 1800s about a Christ-centered philosophy of life. In fact, if you look this up, some places will say that Soren Kierkegaard is the father of existentialism. Now, we don't use that word too much because it's kind of, it like, sounds a little brainy, but we hear the word existential threat a lot, don't we? That means that something is threatening your existence, but existentialism actually means the whole description of life. What is the meaning of life? What is the value of life? And some atheists are existentialists because they see life as totally void of any religious activity whatsoever. But in Soren Kierkegaard's way, he saw life through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of Christ. On the other hand, here's another person now you probably have heard. By the way, let me just see it. How many have never heard of Soren Kierkegaard until I introduced him this morning? Okay, well, see, that's pretty interesting because it's not usually something we study. But he's probably one of the massive men that pointed people to a Christ-centered meaning of life. He actually attacked the church of Denmark, the Danish church, a state church, because they he felt that they were not really teaching the personal relationship that people needed with Christ, it was too much of structure and form, and he actually was on the wrong side of of the sentiments of the church in Denmark. But here's another person you've probably heard of his name, Victor Frankel. How many have heard of Victor Frankel before? I, how many have never heard of Victor Frankel until I just said that? My, we're, we need to do something. Um, Victor Frankel actually uh, followed the Sigmund Freud type uh, history in Austria. He was in Vienna just like Sigmund Freud was in Vienna. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist in Austria during World War II. The sad thing is that he was Jewish. And when Germany took over Austria, he and his wife and his parents were sent to a concentration camp. Not long after there, after the being there, his father died. After that, they exterminated his mother, and then his wife died. He, of course, you can see when he died in 1997, he obviously survived the concentration camp at Auschwitz, and, and in 46 wrote a book, Man's Search for Meaning but not with a Christ or religious tone to it. It's just find meaning in the activity that you're doing. And he is regarded as an expert in existentialism. Man's search for meaning. So Frankl's focus was on how to take suffering, and he knew all about suffering, how to take the pain of life and channel it to something positive to make meaning out of it, to make to take value out of it. He wanted to have a value out of all the suffering, seeing how much he did get remarried. And uh, I think he had a family. But he still kept this idea that you can just take the trouble you go through and find purpose and meaning. To this day, another man that had spent some time in the Auschwitz concentration camp, Elie Wiesel, who wrote the book Night? Now, maybe I need to have a show, show of hands. How many have read the book Night? How many have not read the book Night? All right, I want to tell you do not start reading that book. Do not start reading it, because I can tell you I, 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 somebody gave me the book to read, and I walked up at a coffee shop to get a cup of coffee, and they saw I had the book Night in my hand. And the guy says, "Uh, have you read that? I said, no, I'm going to start reading. And he says, well, good luck starting to read it. He says, when I started reading it, I couldn't put it down. I thought, oh, yeah, right. Two hours later, I'd finished that book. Thankfully, it was not a big book because I'd been there like six hours. I'm a slow reader. Could not put the book down. Because Elie Weasel was also a Jewish person in a concentration camp. And he came out of that with all kind of Wonderful ideas, but I still don't know if he really turned his life over to Jesus. How many know that it's more important out of your suffering to find the one who can really heal your suffering and bring redemption to your life? I do hope that that man came to a knowledge of Christ. He certainly went through all kinds of things. We had we've we've seen some great. Revivals in our nation. We've seen great revivals around the world. Healings, miracles, Azusa Street is a great revival, Brownsville is a great revival. How many how many believe that we need another move of God in our nation? Another move of us understanding what is the actual meaning of life? What is our lives all about? And if it's not really defined by our personal relationship with Christ. We're somewhere off on a tangent. Even if we're born again and you have a relationship with the Lord, be careful what you put meaning to. Be careful what you put value to. Here's a moment in Jesus' life that you won't see very often. I'm going to take you to John chapter 6. and We're about to finish up here in just a little bit. You do not see this very often in Jesus' ministry. Most of the time he's flooded with people. There's people all around him. He's trying to get away from them. He's ministering to them. He's feeding the thousands. It's just like everywhere he goes, he has all this massive crowd, except on this one occasion. He says enough that all of them turn around and leave. I mean, all of them turn around and leave. This is in John chapter six, verse 65. is Jesus went on to say to his disciples, This is why, or he said this to the people before talking to disciples, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the father has enabled them. The meaning, purpose, and value of life. No one comes unless the meaning and the purpose and the value of life is because of who I am and who my father is. This is still kind of like a philosophical battle that's going on in the minds. Not spiritual because these people had seen miracles, they had believed, they were his disciples. Look at the next sentence. From this time, many of his disciples, the people that tagged on with him, that saw all of these things, they decided after hearing him press them about the meaning and the value and the purpose of life, they turned around and leave him There's no other explanation for this. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They completely abandoned whatever faith they had in him because he touched on something that didn't process where they were at. They just turned around and left. To the point that Jesus said to the the twelve, You do not want to leave two, or you do not want to leave two, do you? He asked them. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? I can just see it's only the 13 there. I don't know. Maybe there's another entourage because the chosen shows that there's a bunch of people with him all the time. But it seemed like it was like reduced to just them. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, meaning, purpose, value of life, the existential reality, the true reality of why we're here on this earth is to know him. And Peter says, where do we go? There is no other person that has what you have. Meaning, value, and purpose in life. This is what he's saying. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You're our only choice. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Now, I really like this in the message. I don't know if we have that up. Sometimes you have to go to the message, right? After this, a lot of his disciples left. They no longer wanted to be associated with him. Then Jesus gave the 12 their chance. Do you also want to leave? And Peter replied, Master, to whom would we go? You have the words of real life, eternal life, the meaning of and purpose and value of life. If you look up the word existentialism, it is the study of the meaning, purpose, and value of life. Don't you think this is kind of a gut check for this group? All of these people had walked away. All the, the, They were disciples. They all walked away. And Jesus is having a conversation with the 12 and says, what about you? Are you going to leave too? The crowd walks away. No one can come to Jesus except the Father draws them, right? So in a way, they walked away, determined that the meaning of life, the value of life, the purpose of life did not fit in that person named Jesus. Isn't that tragedy? We read this and we say they saw him up close and personal and walked away from him. We have a lot of things competing for our attention, don't we? I have a, well, I I started to say I have a bad habit. Um, I do have a few bad habits. I don't know if this is a bad habit or not, but I leave my phone on silence. So I miss a lot of calls, miss a lot of texts. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I cannot, and I don't know if somebody needed an emergency in the middle of the night, they'd have to call Brenda because I would—I'd would be—I'm dead to the world. It'd have to be something that really goes off pretty loud to get my attention. But we have so many things competing for our attention that we, our, our, our attention span is—we talk about how children's attention span is so short. How short is our attention span? I want our praise team to come up here as we get ready to have a time around the altar. You know, focus doesn't happen by accident. You just don't say, you know, I was thinking of that. Just started focusing on something. Focus is intentional. The busyness of life, the existentialism that we have in our life, what is meaning, what is purposeful, what is value to us? We have to again and again watch out for the crowd effect around us that doesn't choose what we're going to pay attention to, right? How many do not want someone else choosing what you pay attention to? Maybe I need to say it a different way. How many here are concerned about who's trying to get your attention because they're getting your attention. They're getting your attention with the phone, with all the things that's going on, all of the social media that's out there. And God is lobbying us to look to Jesus. The one, the disciples said, where do we go? Who, who's gonna help us? There's nobody out here that's gonna help us. Not the way you can help us. And somehow, somehow you've been so disillusioned by people disappointing you that didn't come through for you. Maybe a close family member just did not come through for you at a moment you needed them. And yet the meaning and the purpose and the value of your life is that he never takes his eyes off of you. Would you stand with me this morning? Lord, I pray this morning that we will have a new fascination with you, that our eyes turn away from the distractions that are all around us. That's vying for our attention and really and truly it has nothing to add in any way to our growth, our spiritual growth, our positive influence. We realize how many times during the week that we're influenced in a negative way because we've given our attention to something that draws us away from your focus, Lord. You don't want us to be wandering in a maze trying to figure out how to get out of this situation. You want us to fix our eyes on you. And Lord, I pray this morning for those who are in in this room that, They've been sorely disappointed recently and carrying a wound that you want to heal and that you want to show them that you have the value that they're, they're looking for. You have the purpose that they're looking for. You are the meaning of life. And may today, they somehow brush aside all of the distractions that's been vying for their attention and say, Jesus, here I am. Heal me, help me, touch me, restore me, restore my faith, restore my confidence, restore my purpose, my passion for you, Lord. And if you've taken a hit this week in in your life and it's really stung you, and I know this is kind of a specific call, but you've really had a tough week this week, and you need a refreshing from the Lord. I want, if that's you, I want you to come and just stand across the front because the Lord wants to make up for whatever happened in your life this past week. Whatever happened to you, He wants to refresh it. So we're going to worship. If, you have, if that's you, I want you to come just stand here and just say, Lord, I need refreshing from you. Thank you, Lord. They, and He will, He will refresh you. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And some of you that would want to come and just stand with Him and pray, and Lord, You've been good to us. Great song. Great song. Great truth. Hallelujah.